George, just so you know, there's no music. Welcome to our service this evening, and I'm going to hand over to Ollie Neal. Please remain on mute during the service. A very good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome back to our series uh, on whether or not Christianity is oppressive. Uh, we've had a really interesting four weeks, and I've certainly been stretched as I've, as I've thought these things through, and hopefully uh, the discussions have been a blessing to you as well. Uh, let's just open our time by turning to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we reach the end of this series, Lord, we've uh, been challenged in many ways uh, as we try and wrestle with some of uh, the views that are so common in our culture today, some of the ideologies that are so prevalent. Uh, Lord, sometimes it is really hard uh, for us to wrestle with these things. We feel uh, as though we're not capable uh, of truly uh, counteracting them. But Lord, thank you that um, your word has prevailed throughout the centuries, uh, Lord, and it will stand firm against any challenge. So uh, we draw confidence from that, Lord. And as we turn to our final topic tonight and to the Q&A discussions that are to follow, I just pray for your blessing upon Jim as he speaks to us. Give him words of wisdom. Uh, and by your spirit, Lord, would you minister to each of our hearts, uh, Lord, help us, um, Lord, to uh, believe things which... Um, help us counteract these false ideas that we hear uh, in our culture and, with the ch and replace them with the truth of your word. So, Lord, would you bless this evening, I ask it, and uh, may your name be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Brilliant. So we've amazingly reached the, the fifth and final episode in this series. It's flown past. Um, and we've been thinking about this criticism broadly that Christianity is oppressive. And it's common today uh, for people to argue that Christianity in general and the Bible in particular oppresses people, uh, restricting their freedom to express themselves and live without being uh, censored by society. Uh, this criticism comes from an ideology called critical theory. And according to critical theory, society is divided into an oppressor uh, and a set of oppressed minority groups. Maybe you'll remember back at the beginning of our series, that diagram of of an oppressor standing over someone in a cage. And a lot of people think of society in that way. Um, the oppressor can be a white heterosexual male, and the oppressed group might be uh, the black community, the LGBT community, or, or women. Um, and there's lots of other uh, groups that would also fit into those categories. The so-called white heteropatriarchy oppresses these minority groups by creating a system that pushes women, uh, black people, and the LGBT groups to the margins of society. So in that context, the Bible is portrayed as an instrument of oppression. The Bible claims to speak universal truth into every culture uh, throughout history and throughout the world. It has a clear sexual ethic which confines sexual activity to the realm of marriage. And it, it's very clear on the way it defines marriage. It, it insists that it is a faithful covenant, lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. The Bible also insists on gender distinctiveness, both in the home and in 
church in order to model a created order which sets its face against something like transgender ideology. So because the Bible makes clear statements about what human flourishing actually looks like, um, because it describes a divine uh, design plan for human beings, it's then described as being oppressive by those who reject its teaching. In our second discussion in this series, we examined how some post-evangelicals, we called them, try to use postmodern interpretive techniques to create a form of Christianity which affirms LGBT lifestyles. So we looked at scholars like that chap, Peter Enns, who argues that the Bible is a collection of stories that people wrote about the past in order to make some sense of the present. And it's claimed that the Lord Jesus and Paul took the Old Testament myths and gave a fresh radical reinterpretation that made sense of the cultural moment in which they lived. And so it's argued we, uh, living in the 21st century, should do the same as they did. We should simply discard the bits of the old stories that make no sense in our culture uh, and reassemble the bits we think are relevant and construct a form of Christianity that aligns with the cultural moment that we live in. But as we saw, um, and as Jim made really clear to us, that analysis is based on shoddy uh, scholarship. It's not reliable. Um, and it effectively is an act of vandalism that reduces the grandest story ever told and, and, and makes it into a little fable that fits neatly with our cultural prejudices. And effectively, at, at root, it's a rejection of the idea of truth. So in this final discussion, Jim and I are going to have um, a live Q&A event, which is something I'm really excited about. It's something we haven't really tried before. Um, and we're going to use technology to do that, um, particularly a technology called Slido. So you should see a set of instructions on the screen uh, in front of you now. Um, and basically, these uh, instructions are very simple. If you have a mobile device or a laptop with you, um, you go to www.slido.com. And you enter the code, which is 64647, I think. It's very small on my screen, but I think that's right. Um, and you, you essentially just type in your question. Um, and you, you have the option of whether you want to put your name in or not. The question will be displayed publicly, but you don't have to include your name. So it can be totally anonymous if you so desire. You also can then upvote other questions that you see on that list already that you think are particularly helpful and that you'd like to hear an answer to. And those questions will then be pushed up the list and Jim is more likely to answer them. Um, so do be doing that, even as we have our initial discussion. Uh, go on Slido, type in that code and type in a question. We can't promise to answer them all. We're probably going to have a uh, relatively hard stop around half past, but we'll try and get through as many as we can. Um, and it's a great opportunity to ask questions about any of the uh, previous topics we've covered over the past uh, four or five weeks. Brilliant. Before we go to your questions, uh, Jim, I wanted to ask you a few questions myself. And we're going to begin by asking one about critical theory in particular, and why followers of critical theory, uh, this ideology we've discussed over the past weeks, why they find the Bible so offensive. It seems that there is this underlying fear that the Bible somehow prevents us from being our true authentic selves. So my question is, where does that fear come from, do you think? Yeah, well, good evening, everyone. Um, George, I think we could probably take that slide down now. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't think you can begin to understand what's going on in our culture until you've grasped just how radically our, our self-understanding has been transformed uh, over the past two centuries. Yeah, I think that's that's something that um, is is absolutely massive to understand, Jim. And the term uh, that is used to describe the modern view of the self is is kind of a seems like a complex term, but it's called expressive individualism, um, and it's a term that is all about living an authentic life that doesn't conform to uh, like the restrictions imposed by society. Yeah, the, the big idea is that the world out there has no moral value or meaning. Meaning is something we construct for ourselves, and then we then impose that on the world. So obviously, as the first step to invent meaning, we must make the inward turn. Okay, so let's, let's kind of slow down a bit here just as we begin. Um, we've heard that term crop up in our discussions before, the inward turn. Could you just really 
explain that to us in, in kind of simple terms? Okay, well, it can, the question can be answered at two levels. So first of all, at the level of psychology, um, we'll think about it at that level, and then we'll think about it theologically. But let's begin at the level of personality. And in, at that level, the inward turn means this. Who I am is determined, above all, by my inner psychological life. It's not determined by anything outside of myself, not by my family or my church or broader society or the workplace. Who I am is determined by my inner psychological life. I find out who I am by looking inward through introspection. I examine, I delve down into my deepest intuitions and sensibilities. And then from those reservoirs of truth, I am supposed to work out who I am. Yeah, so this is, this is something pretty deep, is what you're saying, Jim. Um, so let's think about the inward turn at the deeper level of theology. You mentioned theology there. Um, do, does the Bible help us understand what's going on with this modern view of, of the self? I think it does. And to help me explain the Bible's insight into this area of life, uh, I want to read you some verses from Genesis chapter 3. And the context here is that Satan has just tempted Eve to disobey God by eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the scripture says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Yeah, I always find that question so sad. Um, you know, this beautiful relationship they had. And then uh, that question, where are you? It's, it's, it really is haunting. Um, and and uh, in many ways, it explains everything that has actually gone wrong with humanity, doesn't it? We've run away from God and we've hidden ourselves from his, his gaze. Yes, and, and that idea of a gaze is really important here because it explains how identity gets formed. Identity forms when we are seen by another person. If you like, we gain self-understanding through a dialogue with other persons. Now, at a practical level, uh, we all know that. Our home life when we were children was the place where our identity formed. It was in that safe space that we were seen and appreciated and loved. So our identity formed under the loving gaze of our parents. I mean, just think of a little boy playing football as his dad watches him. Um, now, of course, not everyone had that blessing in life, but people who, had been, who have been raised in a dysfunctional family know better than anyone else how damaging that experience was for their sense of identity. But let's now take that thinking and return to Genesis 3. The first thing that happens after Adam and Eve sin is that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, in psychological terms, that means they became self-conscious in the negative sense of that term. They became self-regarding. So let's ask, what happens when we try to create our own identity? Well, Genesis 3 tells us we replace the gaze of the other with the gaze of the self. We start to regard ourselves. We begin to look lovingly upon our very own selves. Now, we need to understand just how deep that insight is. We're watching a rupture of the personality. A sort of separation occurs between identity and the self. The thing we call identity now becomes more like an image, something that we can regard. The, the old myth of Narcissus is really helpful here. I mean, he's a figure in Greek mythology who falls in love with his own reflection when he sees it in the water of a pool. And the crucial point is that Narcissus fell in love with his image. Okay, now theologically, that's the way to understand expressive individualism. We live in a society where people are in love with their own image rather than having a healthy self-love. Then a deep rupture has taken place within the psyche. Instead of a unified person looking out at the world, we now have a divided person gazing inwardly at themselves. Now, to put that in really bold, blunt terms, the modern idea of identity turns out to be an idol. It's an idol that we have formed in our own hearts. It's become the regulating principle that governs our lives. So technically, we can say that today we worship our identities. We think they have ultimate value in life. And that is why people become so full of despair and rage when their identities are threatened. It turns out that the gaze of the self is destructive. Yeah, and that, that phrase you used there, Jim, the destructive gaze of the self, that's a, a very strong and powerful phrase. 
And it's very similar to a statement that Tim Keller once made about a healthy sense of identity. Uh, he talks about the freedom of self-forgetfulness. He actually wrote a small book with that title. Someone with a healthy sense of identity isn't self-regarding. They're actually unself-conscious, if you like. Um, and it's the modern self-created identity, which seems to be painfully fragile and in constant need of affirmation. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think the text of Genesis uh, helps us here because it shows what's going on behind the image. Because there's two things going on in that passage, remember. There is guilt and there is shame. When Adam and Eve hide from God in the trees, we're seeing guilt. Right? Guilt drives us away from God. But when we watch them sow fig leaves together, we're seeing Adam and Eve struggle to deal with the shame of sin. Now, guilt and shame aren't the same things. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Shame is a less rational thing than guilt, and it haunts us. It tells us that we are our sin. And that's why an inner shame is so corrosive to our self-understanding. So what, ha what happens is that the gaze of the self always becomes accusing. We feel bad about ourselves. We become our own prosecutor and judge. We can even get to the point where we loathe ourselves. But we can't let anyone know. So we start to unload more and more of the freight of our lives into our image, into our identity. And it becomes more and more valuable to us because we're so ashamed of the real self. And the identity that we have forged now becomes a mask that we present to the world. We use it to mask our inner shame. And that is why the gaze of the self is so destructive. So we've thought about this idea, expressive individualism, we've called it. Um, as as being uh, an idol, and we've thought about how it's uh, how it's dangerous. How does the Bible answer this problem? What what does the Bible say in response to these things? Well, it tells us to stop trying to build our identity using the destructive gaze of the self, and start to see ourselves in the light of God's benign and loving gaze. That's the key to identity formation. Once you become conscious that you are seen by your heavenly Father, and that He affirms you and appreciates you then you're on the path to a healthy self-understanding. So in effect, the Bible's answer to expressive individualism is to replace this destructive gaze of the self with the loving gaze of our Heavenly Father. Correct. Um, but for those who refuse to draw near to God in that way, those who insist on regarding God as a cosmic tyrant uh, and choose to build their identity under the destructive gaze of the self, what, what about them? Well, I think that explains why the LGBT community and contemporary feminists and the proponents of critical theory so resent the Bible. The Bible refuses to bow down in front of the idol of their self-created identity. And whenever an idol in our lives feels threatened, we always react with rage and despair. I don't want to be harsh here, but it seems to me that far too many Christians offer a shallow analysis of culture, an analysis that frames the debates around the seventh commandment, if you like, okay, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, as we saw last week, there is an important conflict between the Bible and culture over sexual behavior. I'm not denying that. But the much, much deeper conflict isn't about the seventh commandment. It is about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. All self-created identities are idols. The root problem in our culture is the idolatry of the self. Brilliant. Thanks, Jim. Uh, that was really, really helpful. And I'm sure um, some of those issues may come up as we turn to our audience questions uh, now. Um, so on the screen, hopefully you guys can see some of the questions that are coming in. Uh, if you have a question you'd like to submit, even during the course of, of my discussion uh, now with Jim, please continue to use the details that are displayed on the left-hand side of the screen. Um, so Jim, the question right at the top of this list of audience questions uh, comes from Fred. I'm not sure if that's a real name or not, but Fred has asked if we use a person's preferred pronoun, but this doesn't match with their biological sex, are we legitimizing transgender ideology? The underlying problem with pronouns is um, the way in which the progressive left has weaponized language. Um, now, there are some battles in this area that I think Christians need to fight, but in my view, I don't think preferred pronouns is one of them. Um, I mean, let's think about the concept of tolerance for a moment. We, we instinctively think of tolerance as a concept that applies to people and not to ideas, okay? So if I am um, 
uh, silly enough to announce to you that two plus two equaled five, you could continue to tolerate me as a person, even if you thought that my arithmetical ideas were completely wrong, because tolerance applies to people and not to ideas. But that is a hard battle to win with the progressive left, because they see any attack on their ideas as an attack on their humanness. Okay, so that's the, the, the sort of overall context. Now, for tactical reasons, I personally think it right to use a transgender person's preferred pronouns. If someone presents themselves to me as male, then I will treat them as male. And I do so out of respect for them as a person, not because I agree with their ideas. Now, once someone has become convinced that I accord them dignity as a person, I might then explain to them why I do so. I regard them with dignity because they are creatures made in the image of God. So I guess my point here is that in order to get to the battle over ideas, we must first win the argument that we're not showing disrespect towards people. So I would draw a distinction between preferred pronouns, which are attached to an individual, and the war against words like mother, wife, man, and woman, or boy and girl. I'd also refuse to give up on gender-specific pronouns when referring to those of us who do believe in gender. So anyway, that's a complicated question of tactics and knowing what battle to fight. Thank you, Jim. Uh, the next question on our list um, is from an anonymous uh, questioner, and they ask, how can we cope with issues like gender when talking to friends or family who are part of the LGBTQ plus community without offending them, but saying what we believe? Yeah. I'm not sure there are any stock answers to this question, Ollie, because each situation is different. Um, We've got to remember the LGBT community loves to tell the story of young gay people who are driven out of their homes by homophobic, religiously bigoted parents. That is an, a common narrative. And so I think it's wise to counter that narrative uh, by being loving and patient. Even when your heart is breaking, you should never stop loving your son or daughter. But it is equally important that you don't jettison your beliefs in what is true. I remember talking to a church elder and his wife uh, that come to a talk I'd given in this subject and they took me aside afterwards and pleaded with me to change my views. Don't you think it good that our son has found someone to love? Asked the woman. And then her husband shrugged and he said to me, theology doesn't work when it gets personal. Now, my, my heart went out to them both. But theology is always personal. It has to be. Otherwise, it's irrelevant. So I would gently suggest, do not allow sympathy to change your beliefs on what is best for human flourishing and what is best for your son or daughter. The balance here is to speak the truth in love. Now, there are all sorts of complicated issues in here. I mean, I would never judge a couple who attended a same-sex wedding if one of their children is involved in it. Um, I think it's also good to meet their partner, perhaps in, in neutral territory like a restaurant. Um, and I often suggest, uh, when I'm, I'm wheeled in to talk to, 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 about these things, I often suggest that Parents write their son or daughter a letter. Now, they may never send it, but the process can help order their thoughts. It's also really important to engage with the right resources online and be very careful where you, you go and what you read. So I suggest you read material by Ed Shaw, Vaughn Roberts, Sam Albury, Rosaria Butterfield. There are websites called Living Out and True Freedom Trust, which contain helpful material. And then, crucially, find other Bible-believing Christians who have walked this path before. So that's what I would say about that. Thanks, German. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, we'll be able to get some of those resources out um, after this talk. Uh, next question comes from Richard. Uh, and Richard asks, what advice would you give to Christians whose workplace is becoming so aggressively pro-LGBT? How can we be salt and light? Well, I think you probably, first of all, have to accept that your career is going to be damaged as a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian. I, I uh, Whatever little success I had in my career, I don't think I would get it now. Because years ago, when I was being promoted, people regarded my evangelical beliefs as a, you know, an Irish eccentricity. Uh, now it would be seen as something dangerous. That is no place in the modern world. So I think you, you almost have to accept up front that your career is going to be damaged. Um, as a general piece of advice in the workplace, I would say avoid group confrontations. Um, sometimes the thing to do is to deflect a, a comment and then uh, follow it up with a one-on-one -on -one conversation with, with the person who raised it. Okay. Now, 
I mean, I think there's another question later on about model questions, which we'll, we'll deal about how maybe to tackle uh, the specifics, but that's probably what I would say in general in the workplace. Okay. Brilliant, thanks. Thanks, Jim. Uh, yeah, this question you kind of referenced uh, kind of a desire to kind of have a, have a model response to uh, some of these things or a kind of a model conversation. That, that's pretty hard to do because obviously these, uh, these can be quite specific, each of these discussions. Uh, but I think maybe we can address this particular question at the top of our list and then maybe broaden it out to uh, what it looks like to talk about these things and more generally. Um, the question is, is there anything we can say when we are confronted with comments about how Christians are homophobic, etc.? Well, it's a really hard conversation to have for two reasons. Um, first, we need to recognize we live in a culture which no longer engages in rational debate. It doesn't. Arguments always get undercut by pop psychology. You're only saying that because you hit me and fear me, or you, you only believe that because of your narrow and prejudiced upbringing. Nobody ever confronts the arguments. Everything gets undercut by pop psychology. So sometimes you need to begin by asking, can we even have this conversation? Will you concede the possibility that my beliefs might be rational? Or have you already decided that I'm just prejudiced? Now, in the context of sexuality, I sometimes remind people that homophobia is a criminal offense. It's a criminal offense based on hatred and hostility to a person. And so I then might ask, so is everyone who tries to live by the Ten Commandments a hate-filled criminal? So that's the first problem. The second big problem is that many of us are simply unable to explain why the Christian worldview is a better story. We tend to fall back on, the Bible tells me so. So I would advise everyone listening to make sure you can articulate the Christian position in a rational, persuasive way and, and, and try that in your kitchen before you attempt to explain it in a school staff room. Uh, I mean, I, I did my best to model, to give some model answers during last week's discussion about sexuality. And so rather than rehearse them all again, um, people might want to re revisit my previous answers on YouTube just to give you a starting point. So it, it's a really tough question. I mean, probably the most useful thing I can do here, Ollie, is give some practical rules of thumb. First, never have the conversation on social media. Always be in a position where you can look the other person in the eye. Second, as I said uh, in, in response to Richard's question, probably try and avoid group discussions, but give a general humorous deflection and then follow it up privately one-to-one. -one. Thirdly, use questions. Questions open people up. I mean, ask, do you really believe that nothing is objectively right or wrong? Or take the conversation about critical theory. You could say, uh, I could say, I'm a white man. How can I be reconciled to black people? You see, critical theory sentences me to a lifetime of penance because it has no theory of atonement. There is no forgiveness. There's no hope of reconciliation. So those sorts of questions are good. And I would urge people to practice their answers, maybe between husband and wife, or, or do some role play and see why, where pairs of teenagers assume different roles. Now, it will quickly expose some flaws in your own understanding, but, but that's the first step to learning. In the words of Peter, do you have a reason for the hope, living hope within you? And, and don't worry if you mess up the first time. I can still remember the completely appalling answer I gave on a university campus during my first ever Q&A session. But it was that experience that drove me to read more and think harder. And I guess the last thing I would say is to love people. Um, about midnight last night, I got a message from a young gay man who, who, who lives in England. Uh, I got to know him when he was a student in Ireland. And nowadays, he has no religious beliefs whatsoever. But something had happened in his life that had upset him. And he had no one to talk to. And I am in the slightly weird position of being his pastor. And so we talked for about 30 minutes. And for most of the time, I just listened. He knows exactly where I stand on his lifestyle and his beliefs. But he also knows that I treat him with dignity and respect as a person. So we can battle against bad ideas while still loving people. That's what I would say to that. Thanks, Jim. That's uh, really, really useful. Um, uh, thank you for that. Uh, the next question comes from Valerie, uh, and Valerie asks, how can we engage with the Bible personally to start living, to, to start to live radically different lives that will give a positive Christian witness in this culture? Yeah. I, mean, I guess we all approach the Bible differently, don't we? But the thing which drew me into the Bible was the realization that it was a grown-up book that had compelling answers 
to the real problems in the world. I mean, I was raised in a pietistic church that never really engaged with the world outside at all. So the Bible almost became like a parallel universe to me. On Sundays, I learned about Abraham and Paul and Elijah. And then throughout the, the week, I lived in a completely different world. And it was only when good Bible teachers pointed out that the Bible spoke into the real world, that it had answers, that it provided a better story, that I began to take it seriously. So the first thing I would say is that we shouldn't see ourselves like medieval monks who withdraw from the world into some quiet cloister uh, to enjoy mystical experiences through Bible study. The Bible lives out in the real world with all its messiness and complexity. And it becomes compelling when you begin to see its wisdom, uh, when you see the profound answers that it has to the human condition. The second answer that springs to mind, I guess, is more important. Um, It relates to how our understanding of God develops. I remember once being on a church weekend, which had an enforced quiet time from 8.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. I remember it offered a cooked breakfast, and uh, there was plates with knives and forks, and then they served me a banana. I'll I'll never forgive them for that. In fact, I was so annoyed I ate the banana with a knife and fork. But anyway, I remember afterwards uh, sitting outside on a rock looking out onto the sea, and I tried to force myself to have deep thoughts about God, uh, and nothing came from that exercise. Because we need to learn. And I eventually did that by coming across Bible teachers um, who didn't just scold me or try to force a theological system into my brain. They were men who really knew God. And I caught through them a glimpse of God's moral grandeur. And that fired me to start studying the scriptures for myself. But personal devotional study always always follows learning from gifted Bible teachers. Uh, So that's what I would say about that. Fantastic. I think we've probably got time for one more, Jim, if that's okay with you. Um, The final question we'll answer uh, is uh, as follows. What will schooling look like? Uh, This is uh, asking you to be a bit of a prophet here, Jim, so uh, I guess it's more of a a guess based on on the evidence you see at the moment. But what will schooling look like in 10 years' time? It seems young people are no longer just taught maths, biology, physics, etc., but also ideologies what can parents do? I think this is a really important question. Um, The first thing to say here, I think, is that we are blessed in Northern Ireland to have an education system that is full of Christian teachers. Um, So we're going to be protected from the worst excesses of indoctrination that children in England suffer. Um, But it's still going to get pretty dark, I think. Um, And at the risk of sounding like a prophet of doom, I'm going to urge parents listening to me here to have a serious conversation with each other about how you're going to raise kids in a world in the world that's coming upon us. And to get the conversation going, I'm going to um, explain an extreme position that I'm going to call digital Amish. Okay? Now, we all know the Amish community rejects modern technologies. They, they drive around in horse-drawn carts and raise barns together, and their eccentric way of life is a great tourist attraction in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania. But now imagine that we adopted a digital Amish life, okay? No Netflix, no teenage sitcoms that promote the values of the progressive left, no social media apps for under-18s. Instead, perhaps our teenagers use bespoke applications that our own technical experts build apps that are open to their peers and church and members of their school SUs. We develop a much richer set of events that turn the church into a lifestyle hub for Christian teens and their friends. Now, of course, that's an extreme response. Uh, I can think of lots of reasons why it might be a thoroughly bad idea. But perhaps there is the germ of something decent there that parents need to think about. To go back to one of the reflections I gave earlier on in this series on the highway to holiness, I am convinced, Ollie, that in a post-Christian world, we need to use church as a a community that will inoculate our teenagers against the values of the world. We should never try to build a teenage crash that isolates them from the world. That's where my digital image idea could, could be misunderstood. But somehow we have to provide a counterbalance to the weight of cultural pressure coming into the lives of teenagers. Um, and and let, me just, uh, let me just add, uh, I saw another question which is linked to this, Ollie, which I'm going to answer. And it's about, somebody was asking about critical theory for, for parents. How, how do parents handle that? Because it's a really good case study of what parents need to do these days. You need to understand the the ideologies that your kids are coming up against. And so, just to take that as an example, what how should a parent or how should parents inoculate their children against critical theory? 
And the first thing I would suggest is to break the link between a passion for social justice and an acceptance of critical theory. Christians should be passionate about social justice. The Bible has a great deal to say about oppression, for example. So you break that link. And having done that, you then can show the flaws of critical theory. I think I already mentioned the most important one. It is no concept of atonement. As Douglas Murray famously said, is a doctrine without mercy. So white people, especially white men, are condemned to a life of permanent penance. So you can ask your children, how, according to these theories, will reconciliation and forgiveness be achieved in society? And of course, there is no answer. And then the second thing is to tell the better story of biblical justice. Uh, the writings of Tim Keller are brilliant in this department of life. But tell your kids the stories of great Christian reformers like William Wilberforce. It was Christians who managed to get slavery abolished in the West, for example. Tell them the wider story of how the early church set up orphanages to take care of little infant girls that the Romans had abandoned on hillsides just because they were girls. And then above all, tell them the story of the gospel, how the power structures of this world were subverted through the obedience of the man Christ Jesus. Okay. So you can then in that way portray critical theory as a naive solution to a genuine problem. So parents can model a genuine passion for social justice as we find it in the thundering denunciations of Amos and Isaiah and the Apostle James. Okay, I better stop talking. No, I love, I love that, Jim. And I think, yeah, we need to uh, tell the better story that we have um, in a powerful way. That really, really useful. Uh, apologies if we didn't reach your question. Thank you for all the questions that were asked. Um, they, were, they were excellent. Um, and yeah, God willing, we'll have the opportunity to do something similar. Uh, down the line. Uh, that's all from uh, our discussion for now. Uh, we're going to sing a hymn. We're going to sing Above All Powers. And then uh, Danny Crooks is going to come and bring a reflection to us from scripture. During this hymn, if the CY guys and girls and leaders could leave the call and join our CY call for a discussion, that would be wonderful. But thank you for listening. I'm sure you'd uh, all like me to thank Jim and Ollie uh, for all the work they put into this series that we've been having over the last five weeks or so. Now, to finish our short series, I'm going to read you a passage from the New Testament, <clears throat> which some may find rather explosive. The New Testament contains a number of passages addressed specifically to the many slaves in the Roman Empire who had become Christians. And when we read these passages, 
many of us nowadays simply switch off and say to ourselves, this doesn't apply to our modern world. We don't have slavery anymore. And yet, as we've seen in recent times, the very mention of the word slavery has become very emotive. Statues of anyone remotely connected with the slave trade in the past have been unceremoniously hauled down. Slavery and oppression has become a common worldview, as we've been saying in this series. And as we have heard, Christianity and the Bible in particular have been accused of being part of the system which prevents people breaking free from psychological oppression. But I think we'll see that this is a very superficial reading of what the Bible actually says. So let's read the passage I have in mind. It's from 1 Peter chapter 2 and most of verses 18 to 25. Let me read it to you. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. <clears throat> this passage is bound to cause those who passionately believe in an oppression worldview to blow a gasket. It sometimes angers people that the New Testament does not highlight the injustice of slavery, nor does it encourage agitating socially or politically against the power structures of the day. Is this because the New Testament has a secret agenda of maintaining the power structures of the day? Well, I hope to show you briefly that the Bible's response to oppression goes much deeper and does far more good than the power struggle which the current oppression ideology advocates. Let me begin by bringing two pieces of historical evidence to your attention. Here's the first. When the Christian gospel was preached throughout the Roman Empire by people like Peter, it was slaves who responded by the thousand to the message of Christ. Roman slaves lived in what today would be called extreme oppression. And yet those slaves found that the message of Jesus Christ they found it incredibly appealing and liberating. The New Testament mentions by name several Roman slaves who had become Christians. The fact that Roman slaves found the message of Jesus Christ so liberating, that disproves the charge that Christian teaching was an instrument of oppression. The second more recent historical fact is this. <clears throat> Over 150 years ago, the government of the United States declared the abolition of slavery. In 1865, all slaves in the USA were declared free. And yet, after over 150 years, we're told that the descendants of those liberated slaves are still living under oppression. They are still slaves psychologically, we're told. Now, I know there are many factors in this complex issue, and I'm not denying um, the, uh, that there is oppression. But here's what I find very significant. Despite huge changes in the law and social power structures, we're told that many people are still living in a state of inner psychological slavery. So changing the external environment does not necessarily bring inner personal freedom. So what conclusions can we draw 
from putting these two historical cases together. I think one simple conclusion is this, and it shouldn't be controversial, that there is a big difference between being free on the inside and being free on the outside. <clears throat> Simply being free from external power and authority and control does not guarantee interpersonal freedom. On the other hand, as the response of slaves in the Roman Empire shows, it is possible to have personal freedom and dignity on the inside, even while remaining in a state of physical slavery on the outside. Human history is the history of wars and revolutions to replace oppressive power structures with different power structures. But history shows us that the new regimes often end up oppressing the previous privileged class. So wars against oppression do not remove oppression, they only change who is oppressed. And as long as history is seen as a struggle for power, oppression will never be removed. So why was it that the message of Christianity was so different in its effect? This is where we need to look at our passage in more detail. What do these verses tell us about how Christian slaves could be personally free on in the inside, despite living under, in some cases, oppressive masters? Now, this is going to be important for any Christian who identifies themselves with one of what we've been calling the oppressed groups in our society. And for the sake of this evening, I'm going to accept your feeling that you are genuinely impressed. I'm not going to argue that point. So what does the Bible have to say to you? I want to point out three things that Peter says in these, three, these verses. Firstly, in these verses, Peter quotes extensively from Isaiah chapter 53, particularly verse 6. And this chapter is speaking prophetically of Jesus Christ and what he would suffer. If you know the chapter, you will know what verse 7 says about Christ. Let me read it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus, the Son of God, knows everything about oppression. He was a victim of oppression and injustice. And as part of his strategy, he endured it quietly. Isaiah twice says he did not open his mouth. The Lord Jesus did not respond with loud street protests or violence. And when slaves in the Roman Empire heard how the Son of God, the creator of the world, suffered oppression and injustice, when they heard how he responded to the unjust parts of his day, with immense dignity, this message resonated with them. They knew that God was not remote from their own suffering and oppression. It also gave them a new understanding of their personal dignity and significance in God's eyes. If the Son of God could live under oppression without losing his identity and dignity, then that raised the status of Christian slaves everywhere. The second point Peter makes is radical and challenging. Peter says that responding to actual or perceived oppression in the same way as Jesus did is part of our Christian calling. To this you were called, Peter says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, I accept that this is really challenging for Christians who believe they are part of an oppressed community. But if one of the reasons that the Lord Jesus allowed himself to suffer oppression was to set you an example to follow, then he has the highest regard for any Christian who follows his example out of faith in the Lord Jesus. Such people are among the greatest in his kingdom. And finally, what is the logic behind enduring oppression? What is the reason for responding in this way? Does this meekness not only perpetuate the problem, 
Does it not simply strengthen the hand of the oppressor? This is where Peter's third and final reason is so important. It was precisely Christ's endurance of unjust suffering and oppression which has brought us to God. Peter says this in the next chapter. Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. It was not a vision of Christ's glory and majesty that brought Roman slaves to faith. It was the vision of Christ's submission to oppression which brought them to God. Christ's endurance of oppression brought freedom to others, freedom on the inside. And what about this world's attempts to get rid of oppression? Over the last couple of 100 years, despite new laws uh, that have given millions of oppressed people freedom on the outside, in practice it seems that many people feel more oppressed in our world today than ever before. What does this tell us? Well, it tells me that there is an oppressive power, but it's on the inside. And there is that um, oppressive power on the inside which makes slaves of all of us in one way or another. Simply changing our external environment can never set people free from that dark oppressive power which is lurking inside each of us. The Bible has a short name for that power. It's called sin. Sin is a controlling power inside us, which denies us freedom and dignity to be the people we want to be. The message of the Bible is based extensively on the story of Exodus. This is the story of how a nation of slaves was delivered by God from an oppressive power, delivered physically, psychologically, and spiritually and the people who were offered an inheritance of their own. That story is often used to explain the Christian gospel. And that gospel is that we are all born into a worldwide nation of slaves. The power of sin forces us to see our lives in a self-centered, selfish way. Sin warps our outlook on every aspect of our lives. It is that which leaves us without freedom. We can even become slaves to our desires, to our desperate need for self-image and self-esteem, as we've been hearing tonight. The message of the Bible is that sin and the distorted and self-centered mindset it produces is the real oppressor, and that Jesus Christ can deliver us from that oppression. Because until the problem of sin is dealt with, there can be no true inner freedom. For those of us who have maybe been fortunate enough to have had a more comfortable uh, enslavement and oppression, the hymn writer Timothy Dudley Smith brought this home to us. Uh, but uh, for those of us who maybe have comfortable lives on the outside, but are still never far from slavery on the inside. He says this in his lovely hymn, Lord for the Years. He says, Lord, for our land in this, our generation, spirits oppressed by pleasure, wealth, and care. Peter's final application for oppressed Christians is this. If Christ's endurance of oppression brought us to God, then our endurance of oppression can bring others to God. If you are a Christian and you are called to experience unjust suffering and oppression, perhaps in your home, in your work, or in society. Then remember that if you respond as Christ responded, you may be responsible for bringing someone to God. I leave that as a challenge for you from the words of the Bible. So may God challenge us to understand the depth and wisdom in the Bible. And may he help us all to respond to the challenge to obey it. Now we're going to end our service this evening by singing that great hymn that I've just mentioned, Lord for the Years.
thank you for joining with us this evening. Our service is now over.